Hey, good evening, guys. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time to be here. I know summertime is always crazy, and we got a lot going on, so I appreciate you being here and taking the time to do this. If you have Bible, and if you don't, we, got, we can have a conversation afterward. Uh, Galatians chapter 2. Actually, I, I'd like to start in Romans 8. So if you think about this, Galatians is a, is a microcosm, if you will, of everything that Romans is. It's a, it's a smaller, more condensed version, but um, we've been talking about this idea. It's probably the central theme of the New Testament, and it's this idea of, of justification by faith and union with Christ. Two, two of the most fascinating and amazing words in all the Bible. Look at Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's, that's, a, that's a justification. It's the, it's the switching places. This, this idea of the law was fulfilled in Christ. Because Jesus has done it, you know, we have life. We have life. Uh, he, he goes on and on and on. And, and I love this. If you skip back, if you skip down to verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. You see that union with Christ. One of the things I think is absolutely amazing by this is there's nothing else in this world that gives you the resources to live in this world with hope. Other than this idea, you think about the end of the book of Revelation and the fact that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. God and will be his people and heaven will come down and we will be united with him Again, this is what Paul is getting at. Not only are you united with him in this futuristic thing that gives you a, a, a real tangible hope, but he also says that I'll give you the spirit of God to live inside of you now so that this thing, this union with him makes you come alive now. That's what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 2. Look at verse 21, Galatians chapter 2. This is where we left off. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, th this would make sense, and this is Paul's summary statement of all the book of Galatians. To accept the law nullifies grace. It it it's one or the other. Basically, it's like this. It's either you justify yourself or Jesus justifies you. That that's it. You see, you got to understand this. If you get God any other way than Jesus' death was unnecessary. Even your good works, your good works become your justification. John Calvin said it like this, for if we do not renounce all other hopes and embrace Christ alone, we reject the grace of God. Now, that, that, that's so important. Functionally and pragmatically, if you do not renounce even your own self-righteousness, well, then you reject the grace of God. The gospel is the only hope for you and me and for the entire world. If anything else saved you other than Jesus, then Jesus' death is unnecessary. See, it, it's, it's real simple, and yet, and it's subtle. Religion says, obey, and God will accept you. But the gospel says, God accepts you, therefore obey. It, it, it reverses the order. You don't, you don't obey for obedience sake. You, you obey because you're already accepted. Religion says, it's about me. The gospel says, it's about Jesus. And I'm justified through him. Religion says I obey God in order to get things from him. The gospel says I obey God to delight in him and to resemble him. See, religion says my identity and self-worth is based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. The gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. It changes everything. And that's Paul's point. To accept the gospel is to reject all other forms of salvation. That's Galatians 2. 
Now let's go into Galatians 3. There's a lot going on in this chapter. But you need to get that Paul is stringing together one long and large argument. The point is that when God made a promise to Abraham, he's going he's to get real practical here. Back in Genesis chapter 15, if you remember this, if I can just recap it really quickly, um, you've got these covenants that run through the Bible. If you didn't know this, give you a little theology. Um, when God created Adam and Eve, he, he made something called the Edemic Covenant. In these covenants, you always have something called signs and seals of covenants. So God gives you a sign, and then he seals it with a contractual agreement. The fascinating thing that makes a covenant different than a contract is God takes the covenant blessings and gives them to you, and he takes the covenant curses and takes them upon himself. It's actually the best contract ever. He fulfills both sides of the covenant, and then he gives it to you. So the first one's the Edemic covenant. The second one is the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, for Abraham, you remember what the promise was? I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seas. This is Genesis 15. Anybody know how he enacted the covenant, what the sign in the seal was? He put Abraham to sleep, and then he killed a dove, split it in half, and walked through the middle of it. Here's what God was saying. I'm going to take the covenant curse, and I'm going to walk through the middle of it to tell you that if I don't fulfill the covenant, I'll take the curse for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. God gives you the blessings, he takes the curses. He's showing you in this one example that everything that Abraham had in Genesis 15 was by faith. Abraham believed God, it says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was 90 years old. His name was Abram. He had a wife named Sarai who was 100 years old, or flip that around, 190, which if you know anything physiologically, ain't a lot of babies coming at 100 years old, all right? It was a true miracle. And yet, Abraham believed him. Now, Sarah had some work to do. She actually named her son Isaac, which means son of laughter, because she was kind of laughing at God, like this is impossible. But Abraham believed him, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, this is awesome. The faith of Abraham was that he believed God. Now, God made his promise to Abraham by giving him this, this covenant blessing. And, and the covenant blessing was, not only are you are going to have Isaac, but you're going to have a son named Jesus whom all the descendants of the earth, now that, that word all is really important because all doesn't mean everybody, but it actually means representative of everybody. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's going to be people from all ethnos or different people groups that are going to come to faith. Now, why is that important? Revelation 7, 9, and 10 tells you the same thing. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Here's what that means. When you get to heaven, you're not going to lose your culture. You're going to become one. Now, that's, Paul's going to say that in Genesis, uh, Galatians 3. We're all going to become one in Christ. But you, listen to me, unity is not the same as uniformity. Oneness is not the same as sameness. And I think that that's what we have to understand is when you build God's kingdom, God's kingdom reflects the kingdom of heaven, which is actually going to reflect people from different tribes, tongues, and nations. You're always going to be Nigerian. It doesn't really, you're not going to become something different. Now, your primary identity is going to be citizen of heaven. Your secondary identity might be Nigerian. And, and what ends up happening when you become a Christian is you, you change the order of your identities and you become one in Christ, which unifies us together. So you see this, this covenant blessing is that through Abraham, you're going to get this godly line that is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Again, another thing, if you didn't know this, through the book of Genesis, you can trace it from the very beginning. There's a godly line and an ungodly line. So you have Adam, who has two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel's the godly line. Cain is the ungodly line. And you see this through Abel's family. You'll see descendants that continue to trace out through Noah into Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then it's Jacob and not Esau, and then it's Joseph and not the other brothers. And it keeps going down to David and Solomon. And you go all the way down to the book of Matthew where you see this genealogy of Jesus. You can trace it all the way back to the Edemic line all the way through. And then you get to the genealogy of Jesus, and Jesus himself comes through this line through his father Joseph and his mother Mary. You see Mary's genealogy traced through the book of Luke, and Jesus' genealogy traced through the book of Matthew, and it traces all the way back to this promise. It's really, really cool. The Bible has a story arc to it. 
See, the summary of Galatians chapter 3 is that the promise of God came through this Mosaic law 430 years before that law, Abraham came. What, what Paul wants you to know is that the covenant made through Abraham supersedes the law of Moses. God made this promise to Abraham. He's going to fulfill that promise, which has ramifications for both Jews and Gentiles. When the law came, that law does not nullify the promise that was made to Abraham. That's Paul's major point. And you are children of Abraham if you are of the promise. How do you know if you're of the promise? Remember, remember Romans 8? If you're adopted as sons through the justification and union with Jesus. See it? See how it's all working together? Because of Abraham, because, because of Abraham and because of the promise, there, there's this lineage for people who believe in Jesus that you are adopted or you're grafted in. You're not by blood. You're not Jewish in nature. You are adopted into the family. In adoption, in adoption, you get every single right. I've, I've said this before. When Jesus died on the cross, he turned the criminal trial of God's judgment on you into an adoption ceremony. It is the coolest thing ever. See, God, God has been creating a family since the very, very beginning. And with your union with Christ, you are a part of that family. Let's jump back in. Galatians chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If, in, if indeed in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, you see there's the example, and it was counted to him as righteousness. A lot of theologians, they, they like to call this, this section the second rebuke, because it's the second time, if you remember, that he pretty much calls them bewitched or, or foolish. Um, he, he's He's calling them false teachers. He, he does that by asking them five, five quick questions. Who has bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by hearing of faith? Have you begun by the Spirit and are now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer in vain? And does he who supply the Spirit to you work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? The entire chapter is there to answer those questions. So Paul is a very formulaic writer, and he's going to answer those questions. Here, here it is, if you want to distill it down. How did you experience faith? Was it by works of the law or was it by faith? That's, that's, that's the big idea of the entire chapter. Here's why that's so important. And you need to answer that question too. How you answer that question will determine who you are. How you answer that question will determine who you are. If your relationship... If your relationship with God is transactional based on good works, then the only way that you are ever going to maintain a relationship with God is if you continue to do good things. Y'all, that is crushing. You, you realize that this is why the gospel is the only thing powerful enough to give you a new identity. Because anything else is dependent on you. It's dependent on your ability to be good enough or your ability to achieve. And ultimately, those things that you marry yourself to will end up crushing you. I, I heard Tim Keller say this the other day. When the church marries anything other than Jesus, they have, they have children, and those children tend to look like the thing that you married. If you marry your vocation, guess what your children spiritually are going to look like? A slave to your job. If you marry culture, you're going to become a slave to culture. See, the reality is, is actually, if you look at this idea throughout the Bible, marriage, marriage is particularly, Ephesians 5 will tell you this, supposed to show you not your union with your spouse, but your union with Jesus. And marriages have a oneness that comes together, a uniting, a union, and the byproduct of healthy biological marriages is children. And the children are what comes out of that. Now, if you actually read the Bible, the byproduct of the church or you marrying Jesus is the Spirit of God in you, which should produce the fruits of the Spirit. 
that actually get replicated. But if your byproduct or your marriage is not Jesus, it's going to produce something. When the church marries the government, it produces politics. Uh, if, if you marry, again, whatever that might be, you, you become that thing. And that's what crushes you every single time, and it messes you up. But if your relationship with God is based on his good works, his experience, his accepting of you, then it's freeing. See, Paul wants you to know that you can continue in the place that you started. Don't, you don't have to go somewhere else. You remember that he says, what do you continue in? What is perfecting you? Well, if you have the spirit of God in you, it's his righteousness, his good works. And the byproduct of that is something different is you continue in grace. This is why we say that the gospel isn't just the diving board. It's not just a prayer you pray, but it's something you go deeper into every single day. It's not just the entry point into Christianity, but it's actually how you grow deeper in the gospel too. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he used to say you, you, the, the way you grow in your faith is you go back to the beginning and you continue there. Keep going back to the gospel. Keep going deeper into it. Keep, keep producing in you his good works through you. See, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, that word, that, that, that word there is more like, if I could translate that into southern English, oh bless your heart. That's basically what he's saying. He's saying you're foolish. In Greek, you can actually translate that, you're not smart. That's what he's saying. Why are you so dumb, is basically what he's saying. Yo, that's, that's, let, let me get, a, let me get a little, even a little more uh, pejorative here. He's saying, who has put an evil spell on you? That's literally what he's saying. Who has bewitched you? It, it, it's witchcraft. He's, Paul is saying, if you believe anything other than the gospel, you've been duped by evil. Think about that. C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote this, I think maybe his most profound book is Screwtape Letters. And it's the story of the, the devils or the, the uh, Satan's demons trying to convince you not to believe in him. And it's a conversation between like a superior demon and a junior demon. And one of the most convicting things that he says is if you want to convince him to go to hell, you don't have to convince them that God's not real. Just keep him busy with a bunch of other stuff. Just make him believe that he's not so good. Make them believe that they're, they're good enough. And then you'll accomplish your goal. You don't have to tear down Christianity through militant atheism like Richard Dawkins tries to. No, the, the far better way to tear down Christianity is through nice southern charm in cultural Christianity. That's pretty much what Screwtape Letters is saying. It, 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 can, it convinces the entire world that they are Christian even though they don't have to do anything at all other than pray a prayer. They, they just sprinkle a little niceness, niceness on it, create some moral laws, and, and, and be a little bit better, right? So Lewis would go on to say, arrogance is not thinking that I'm better. I just have to think that I'm better than you. I just have to compare myself to you. See, the Galatians had clearly heard the gospel. They've been convicted by these false gospels. They, and, and, and they left the real thing quickly because I just think that the, 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 the simplicity of the gospel is so hard to believe. And it's really hard to believe. Do you know why? Because of our pride. It takes The only thing it takes to believe the gospel is humility. You have to confess that you will never be good enough, nor do you need to be. And it's a lot easier just to say, I can do this on my own. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the great Russian novelist, he said the, the, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. See, there's always going to be this pull back to the old things. That's Romans 7. Because this flesh is still a part of you. And, and there's a part of you if, you, if you're honest with yourself, that still believes the lie that you can control your own destiny. You realize that you can't. I don't want to be morbid, but you, look, you, you don't know what's going to happen tonight when you get in your car and drive home. My, my stepsister was on an airplane the other day and she was afraid to go home and I literally told her I fly all the time airplanes are super safe you have nothing to worry about 
except for the fact that she was on an Allegiance airline flight coming into Tampa from Asheville, North Carolina, that almost crashed, hit severe turbulence. They dropped 10,000 feet in a couple seconds. A couple people got stuck to the roof. They had to make an emergency landing in St. Pete Airport, and several people were taken to the hospital. You never know. And if you don't believe me, go Google it. It made national news. She was on that flight. You just never know. You never know what's going to happen. I think I told you guys, I don't, if I did, you can tell me to be quiet, but, but I heard this sermon not long ago um, uh, about just, just get rid of the frogs tomorrow. Did I tell you this? One of the coolest sermon illustrations I've heard is when, when uh, the Pharaoh was being tempted um, and, and the frogs came and he's finally fed up and the 10 plagues, he comes up to Moses and says, okay, you guys can leave. Just tell God to get rid of the frogs. And Moses says something interesting. He says, okay, when do you want me to go tell him? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And in the sermon illustration, the guy says, you know, we all want God to do a miracle tomorrow because there's still a little bit in us that wants to hold on to our sin today. We still want to do it ourselves today. Hey, God, I want you to save me tomorrow, but I'm going to give it one more, chan- one more chance today. Hey, God, I, I, I don't ever want to look at pornography again, but just tonight. Like, save me tomorrow. It's the mentality that we all have. God, I'll, I'll surrender to you tomorrow, but today I can do it on my own. See, see, there's a play on words here with this word bewitched. It means that your eyes are under a curse. The way, the way, that they, the way to stay in the gospel is to keep your eyes on Jesus and not on other things. I've told you this before. So I think Clayton's going to talk about it on Sunday. If you want to stop sinning, you don't have to hate your sin. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Thomas Chalmers, the great reformer, he called this the explosive power of a new affection. You, you need to run towards Jesus. You don't have to necessarily run away from sin. Matter of fact, if you ever want to do a word study on this, there's only one sin in the New Testament that, that the Bible actually says that you should flee from, and that's sexual sin. Every other sin, it just it, it says to resist it, to resist it, because all you got to do is keep your eyes on Jesus. Sexual sin, flee from it, because that's a whole different category. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus then you don't have to worry about your sin. It's like Peter walking on water. I told you guys that. The reason why Peter sank was because he took his eyes off of the one who could save him and he put it back on the storms. The first time I ever played um, football in front of a, a, a big crowd, um, I played in front of crowds, but I'm talking like a full stadium. You know, so many people where you can't see or hear yourself talk. 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people. Um, it, it took a moment for me to be able to have tunnel vision to just see what's right in front of me. I was so, so distracted by the crowd and overwhelmed by it, especially the end zone crowds. Because in high school, you only play with people on your sides. But these end zone crowds and the jumbotron and the, the, the little countdown clock, the 25-second countdown clock in the corner, all these things distracted me so much that I couldn't read coverages because my eyes were on the wrong thing. I, I, didn't, I hadn't developed this idea of tunnel vision yet. See, the idea of the Christian life is somewhat uh, developing tunnel vision or else you're going to be bewitched. If you see anything other than the gospel, you're going to be bewitched. And I think that that's the schemes of the enemy is to try to get you off of Jesus and onto your circumstances. See, these guys, their eyes had physically seen Jesus crucified. They had watched him get up from the grave. It's really not disputed historically that Jesus was a real person that was crucified under Pontius Pilate. There's no debate that this happened. Uh, and, and, and the leading theories among Christ, uh, non-Christians about Jesus' crucifixion, if I can just say this, are absolutely asinine. They're, they're really stupid. Uh, let me tell you the two leading theories other than that Jesus rose from the dead. The, the first one is called the hallucination theory. Uh, what they would say is that basically the 11 disciples had a psychotic episode to where they all hallucinated at the same exact time and somehow think that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, but he never resurrected. And I'm telling you, this is the leading theory. They say that, they say that, this, is, that this is probably what happened, but the reality is it's absolutely, incredibly impossible that this would have happened. Not only would it not have happened, but Paul would actually tell you in the book, in one of his books, that over 500 people saw Jesus alive after he resurrected from the dead. He wrote it in a book that the Roman Empire was trying to squash. So if he was lying, they'd have been like, aha, 
Not true. And on top of that, all the eyewitnesses of the resurrection experience deep suffering for being called Christians. And then on top of that, the Christian faith spread like wildfire. The second most leading theory in the world among secular, the, uh, secular historians is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is so silly that I, I, I can't even believe that people believe it. But if you've ever read the book called The Da Vinci Code, which, by the way, the writer of tried to make it a fictional book, and people still believed it as fact, but basically that is the swoon theory. Swoon theory is that Jesus never actually died, that he was just deeply injured, that he got up out of the grave, he moved to France, had a family, lived out the rest of his life. You know what the problem with that story is? The Roman Empire was so, so good at killing people. I'm reading a book by Tom Holland, a secular theologian from Oxford right now, where he traces out the history of just how well the Roman Empire killed people. They didn't get it wrong. And if they did get it wrong, they, they gave their own lives up. They put him in a sealed tomb, guarded by soldiers that would have died if they let anybody in, and yet Jesus still got out. They were super motivated not to let this happen. And those 11 disciples who supposedly hallucinated, all of them died for their faith, other than John, who was tortured and put on the island of Patmos to live out the rest of his days. Nobody, nobody, nobody would die for a lie that they knew was a lie. Nobody. See, the reality is that Jesus really did die. He really did raise from the dead. Hundreds of people really did see him. A worldwide religion really did spark out of nowhere. And if you ever want to talk to an atheist, ask them to explain to you how Christianity started so quickly because no religion in the world has ever done that and no historian has any uh, idea or plausible explanation for how it could have happened so quickly. So Paul says, hey, why are you going back? It's the same question you ask yourself. Why are you so easily entangled with things that just aren't true? Why do you go back to religion when you have justification that's found in Jesus? That's exactly the point that Paul wants to make, and he's asking the Galatians these series of rhetorical questions, verses 2 through 5. So let's walk through these questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing by faith? Here's what he's saying. Do you know what hearing by faith means? It means, y'all, somebody had to share the gospel with you. If you didn't know this, you can't believe what you have not heard. That's Romans 10, which, by the way, should motivate you to take the gospel to the nations. Because there's about 8 billion people on the planet right now, and billions of them will live and die and never hear the gospel. And you have the gospel. So real quick, if you get this, and you know that God calls you, what is sending you back? What is sending you back? I shared this with our staff not long ago, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your ways may be known on the earth, your saving powers among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. You see this? God's blessings aren't meant to stay with us, but they're meant to go into us, through us, into the nations. Someone shared the gospel with you. You heard the gospel, and you believed the gospel. You decided that the supernatural was real. You didn't earn your way into the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was given to you. You received it by hearing, by faith, just like Abraham, he says. So if you started with the Spirit of God, why do you not think that you would grow by the Spirit of God? Here's what he's saying. God put his Spirit inside of you. He changed you. You knew this. Why do you think you can grow under your own power now? That's the second question. Listen, if you have the spirit of the living God inside of you, and every single time you lean on yourself, you are drastically decreasing your ability to grow in Christ-likeness. You, you, you know that, right? Your good works will never compare to what God has done in you and he will do through you. Now, Paul, he ties all of this together through Abraham's story. By the way, he does this in more detail in Romans chapter 4. So if, if you want to mark that, go back and read it sometime. He, he's going to walk through that. But way back again in Genesis 15, he tells you that Abraham, Abraham's going to have a son. And that it was going to be a miraculous work of faith that this brother at 100 years old was going to have a son with a wife who's 90. God tells him that his son is going to be the father of many nations. Y'all imagine the faith that this would have had to take for Abraham to believe this. And imagine the faithfulness of simply believing this was possible. There came a family that the Savior of the world would be born through him. And so from him, by faith, you have been adopted 
into his family. You see, it's by faith that a family has been born, and now you're a part of it by faith. That's Paul's point. The gospel didn't start by works. It didn't start by the law. The law, the Mosaic law, those 10 commandments, they came 430 years after Abraham. The gospel actually started by faith. And even supersedes that. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, Martin Luther called this the proto-euangelion. If you didn't know, proto means first, euangelion, or ah, whatever, I can't say it, means gospel. It's where we get the word evangelism from. It means good news, heralding. It's unrolling and telling you. So 6,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, God gave you the gospel. And it was all because of what he has done, not because of what you do. This is where Romans 5, 8 makes so much sense. Before you did anything good or bad, Christ died for you, for the ungodly. This goes back further than even your life. This is verse 7. Know then that those of faith are sons of Abraham. You see the logical progression? God gave Abraham a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had a son named Joseph. Joseph had a son named David. David had a son named Solomon. Solomon ended up having a son named Jesus. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he is able to impute or give away by union with you his righteousness into whoever believes because way back when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You get all of Jesus' record. You get all of his account. That's that justification. You get it all because you are a son of Abraham. You're a son of the promise. You, you get all of this. By the way, this is absolutely incredible because the Jews thought that this was just reserved for them through a physical bloodline. But the gospel is not just for Israel. Romans 9, I'm not going to get into all this, but go read it sometime. Paul would tell you, not all of Israel is Israel. I'll give you a theology that I have, okay? This will offend most American Christians today. I don't think that the nation of Israel matters that much biblically, that geographical nation. I think the nation of Israel is a representation of the church. And what you see is we are adopted into this thing called the church, and the 12 tribes of Israel represent what you see as the 12 apostles. So that's why when they had 11, they had to appoint one more, because it's a representation of the complete church, which means when you read the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, what you need to equate that to is the church in the New Testament, and all the promises of the land of Israel is actually pointing to heaven. It's pointing to heaven on earth that you will receive as being sons and daughters of the promise. You are Israel. Okay, that's what I think theologically. I think that these, this nation state, as beautiful as it is, is just paradynamic uh, of this thing called the church. You are Israel. So everything in this promise is not to a bloodline, it's to a people. And those people have Jews and Gentiles who come to faith by the promise through Jesus. So if you want to be a part of Israel, you're a part of it through adoption through Jesus. If you believe the gospel, you're a part of the kingdom of God through the church. See, it's so beautiful. The whole thing is pointing to this reality of God building his kingdom through his people. Verse 8. In the scriptures, foreseeing that God, I love that, foreseeing, it already knew that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. You see that? The scriptures saw that the Gentiles were going to come to faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. He's preaching the gospel. It's by faith, through grace. In you shall all the nations be blessed. All the nations don't just mean Gentiles, or don't just mean Jews. It's Revelation 7, 9 and 10. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. None of this is new, what Paul is saying. The gospel's not new. It's always been this way. The gospel has always been the plan. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse is everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them. That would make sense, right? If your justification is the law, well, then you, you, you're under a curse until you can fulfill the law. You're either justified, this is Paul's point again, you're either justified by your own justification or you're justified by Jesus's. You either receive it or you achieve it. But you can't achieve it. 
So you can either receive it or you're going to be under the curse of the law. If you prefer to be under the law, you've got to keep the whole law, all of it. If you break any of it, you've broken the law. It's like this. I've told people this before. If, if I tell Allison that I'm 99% faithful to her and I only have an affair once a year, I'm completely unfaithful, right? I'm not 99% good. No, I'm completely unfaithful. That's how the law works. If you've ever broken any of it, you're completely lawless. Like, you can go to court and say, yes, but I've only ever murdered one person. <laughs> but you still murder somebody. It doesn't really matter how good you are if you're not perfect. See, there's only one man who has ever done this, and his name is Jesus. And because he was the God man, because he was fully God and fully man, he could do that. Because him being fully man, by the way, I used to have a seminary professor who would tell me this, and, and he used to aggravate me, but he's right. And, and I hear people say it all the time. He was not 100% God and 100% man. That means he's 200% of something. He was fully God and fully man. He was completely God and completely man. Because he was completely God, he didn't have a sin nature, but because he was completely man, he absolutely, he had every temptation that you would ever have, which means that he could be the true sacrifice. He could be the spotless lamb. He could do what you never could do. And because he did, and he didn't deserve it, he could credit your account. That's what justification means. He could give you his account. And now your resume looks like his. See, you will either say when you get to heaven, look what I did or look what he did for me. And if your answer when you get to heaven is anything other than I'm here because of Jesus, then you got it wrong. If God asks you, why should I let you in? And you start saying anything other than Jesus, you've got it wrong. I'm telling you, if you go back to being a good person to be saved, you're going to be under a curse that's going to lead you to death. And some of you are like, but I'm a good person. Let me just tell you, according to who? According to who? See, the problem is, is if, if your standard is God's standard, and you have to have this, this is why culture needs to understand that you have to have absolute morality. If you don't have absolute morality, meaning that it has to come from outside in, then you're going to have subjective morality that's going to be based off of cultural bias. And if, and if there is no God, then let me just tell you, your morality is no better than anybody else's. And you can't tell the jihadist that he's wrong because it's subjective. And it doesn't really matter if you think that you're objective. The reality is it's not. It's based on culture. And culture changes. But if your standard for right and wrong is outside of you, meaning God did it, then it transcends culture. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified by works of the law. Of course it's evident. If J.I. Packer, I think it was, maybe it was A.W. Tozer, said, if, if God just put a tape recorder around your neck for one day and it, wasn't, and it only recorded your thoughts and you played them back to yourself and to everybody else, you'd probably be really embarrassed about who you are. It is evident that you're not as good as you think you are. You can lie to yourself, you can lie to me or anybody else, but it's evident. The law, or the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. This, this makes sense, right? It doesn't take faith to earn your own justification. It, it, it does take a ton of faith to give your life away to Jesus and let him take it over. That, that takes a ton of faith to say, God, I'm yours. I, I've shared this with you before. Faith, and this isn't new to me, but faith is like sitting in this chair. I can look at this chair all day long and I can tell you physiologically and sociologically and scientifically or whatever ifically you want to put our ology behind it that this, that this is a great chair. It is made great. I don't know where he bought it from. It looks like Ikea, so it's probably not that great. Um, but let's just assume it's from Pottery Barn or something or um, whatever. It, like, it should hold you. It's got four legs. It, it, it has all the weight and everything in it. And like, you should sit in that chair. But the reality is, is that you don't actually believe that this chair can hold you until you transfer your weight from your body to that chair. That's what faith is. I can tell you all day long, you can tell me all day long that you believe in Jesus. I've told you this before. Nothing in the Bible says believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven. Nothing. The Bible says put your faith in Jesus, which means transferring the weight of your life off of you and onto him. That's how you have faith. There's a sense in which until you sit down in that chair of faith, until you say, God, my life is yours, 
Until you say, or as Jesus says, take up your cross, die to yourself and follow me. Until you actually do that, you don't have real faith. You have the type of faith that looks at a chair and says, that's a great chair. But the reality is you got to sit in the chair. See, faith isn't showing up to church. It's not learning a bunch of facts about Jesus. It's about knowing him and transferring your weight and trust onto him. That's the difference. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See that? That transfer, that, that shifting places. I told you this last week, it's propitiation, Jesus dying in our place. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's the gospel. Jesus became the fulfillment of the law by living a perfect life and dying his death in our place. That's why you, that's through the law. Jesus didn't die apart from the law. He kept the whole law. He took the curse. He took what you deserved by going into the grave and being cut off from God. I, I heard this again today. I was listening to Tim Keller's sermon. I thought this was so profound. He said, when Jesus said, I thirst, he wasn't actually thirsty in the sense that you think he was thirsty. He was thirsty because the living water that God was going to give to you, he was cut off from. It was a spiritual cosmic thirst. He was completely cut off. And so in that moment, when he's saying, I thirst, he's actually saying something deeply profound. He's saying, everything that you drink in this world that will never satisfy you, I'm going to drink the cup of that wrath so that the living water can flow to you and you can experience all that God has for you. The curse of God went on Jesus so that the blessings of God can go on you. Jesus physically died so that the Father who turned his face away from him would never completely or ever utterly cut you off from him. Union with Christ. See it? It's the, he's tracing it. The worst thing that will ever happen to you is not that you will die. Matter of fact, if you believe the gospel, it only gets infinitely better. I, I, I'm going to go back to I've been listening to a lot of Keller lately, so, um, but I've been listening to like the last couple weeks of his life because I think you can learn a lot of profound stuff from a dying man. And the last thing he said the week before he died is if the gospel is true, then everything's going to be okay. And it's one thing for me to say that. It's another thing for a guy with pancreatic cancer who can barely talk and about to die to say that. It's true, though. If the gospel is true, then the worst thing that can ever happen to you is not that you're going to die. The worst thing that ever happened to you is that you don't know Jesus. You know, even in this world, even in this world, you've got to understand this, even as an unbeliever in this world, there's common grace. Psalm 19, Romans 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. You see it around you. God is sovereign in this world. Even in the evilness of this world, God is still restraining evil. There's going to come a day when he's not going to do that anymore. There's going to come a day when he's going to build his kingdom, and he's going to say, hey, the thing that you've asked for your entire life, for me to leave you alone, I'm going to leave you alone. And I'm just telling you, there's going to be nothing worse than that day for people who don't know Jesus. The the thing that's going to make hell awful is not the fact that there's going to be torture. The thing that's going to make hell awful is the fact that God won't be present. And because God is present in this world and in your life, this is where the Spirit of God living in you can actually give you heaven on earth now. It can give you a sobriety and a joy that nothing in this world could ever give you. There's going to come a day when that won't be there. But you don't have to experience that ever, if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have the union with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation now. If you actually go back and read Romans 8, I, I love the present tense of the language. He's not telling you this stuff's going to happen in the future. He's telling you, you know, you have the Spirit of God now, you're a new creation now, and you have everything that you would ever need for life now. See, that's the point. You weren't saved through works of the law. You were saved through faith in Jesus which was God's plan all along. Listen, so he would say it this way. Stop going back to the law. Stop going back to whatever you're looking for to justify you. You have everything you need in Jesus. You're called a son of the promise, a son of the gospel. You are an heir and a co-heir to the kingdom. You will have everything you'll ever need. 
God's kingdom is coming down. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death will be no more for those who know Christ. Why? Because death was swallowed up in victory. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Praise be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, because he swallowed up death in his victory, which means that you will never, ever, ever die again. I heard another illustration. Um, a man had just lost his wife and his daughter and them were in a car and they're driving and a semi almost hits them and she gets scared. She screams. So what the dad does is he, he thinks about it for a moment. He pulls over on the side of the road and he says, did, did that car actually hit you? And the daughter says, no. Um, and, and he looked at her. He says, in the same way, death never hit your mom. It was just a shadow. And he says, because death hit Jesus, what she did was pass right into something more glorious, just like this situation. It was just the shadow that came upon you. And I think that that's the case. Matter of fact, you can make a theological case, and, and I, I will flesh this out later if you want, but, but where Jesus says you'll never taste death, that something in Christ happens at the moment of death, that almost like God just takes you. That's why some people say that Christians tend to be so peaceful in that last moment. Um, and I think there's something to that. That death was swallowed up in victory, which means you can make a theological case that you might not ever experience the, 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 last, the last agony of that if you are in Christ because it was swallowed up in him. But more so than that, what it means is that you've already died a spiritual death that you'll never, ever, ever die again. You died it in Christ, which means you'll live with him forever and ever and ever, and that starts now. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave Abraham a promise. Let's talk about this, but, but let me make a point. Just because God gave the nation of Israel the law 430 years after doesn't mean that God's promise to Abraham is no longer valid. That's what he's saying. See, the Abrahamic covenant, which was all about God's grace, through Abraham's faith, supersedes those things. It actually goes all the way back to that story where he puts him to sleep, where he walks through the animal, where he takes the covenant curse on himself. The point is that all covenants have covenant blessings and curses. And, and the curses are not, and the curses happen because we don't keep the covenant. But, but because we don't keep the covenant, this is what happens. This is the beauty of the gospel. God takes the curse for you. None of us kept his covenant. None of us kept his perfection. But God keeps the covenant for us. So in Jesus, he took the curse to give you the blessing. It's as if in Christ, you kept the covenant. That's what he's saying. It's as if you were perfect. Paul's point is that the Abrahamic covenant came before the Mosaic covenant. And just because God gave the law doesn't mean that it changes those things. The promise to Abraham came first. The promise still stands. And according to Paul... The promise of Abraham wasn't really a promise about Isaac. It was a promise about the seed or the offspring. Now, who was the offspring? Jesus. If you think about this theologically, when God makes a promise in the Bible, it tends to have an immediate fulfillment and a fulfillment in Christ. Think about Solomon. David, you're going to have a son who's going to build me a house. Solomon and Jesus. Matter of fact, if you actually go to Isaiah 9, the virgin will conceive it had an immediate promise, and then it was a promise fulfilled in Jesus. Same thing here. It, it was Isaac, but it's Jesus. All these promises have an immediate fulfillment, but then it has what we call an, a Christocentric fulfillment as well. Now let's drill down on this, verse 18, and I'm trying to go quick because I want to cover all of chapter 3 tonight, and I'm going to do it really quickly. Uh, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Notice the word inheritance here. Circle that word. The idea of an inheritance is something that's given to you because someone else earned it. You don't earn your inheritance. If you're like me, you probably ain't getting one. 
but some of you might get one. You receive the inheritance. John Calvin, again, he said it like this, let's carefully remember the reason why in comparing the promise with the law, the establishment of the one over the other. The reason is that the promise has respect to faith and the law to works. Faith receives what is freely given, but works is a reward is paid. God gave it to Abraham, not by requiring some sort of compensation on his part, but by the free promise, for it was the view of uh, for if you view it as conditional, the word grace would not be applicable. It's all about what God does, not what you do. If you did anything to earn your salvation, then the cross was completely unnecessary. He's continuing to drill this down. It's an inheritance. It's not what you did. It's what he did for you. It's the most glorious thing imaginable. Why then the law, Paul says? Good question. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring could come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. One thing you need to understand is that the law is not eternal. It's not eternal. Meaning, it didn't always exist, and it's not always going to exist. It's a temporary station in life. The law was given to Moses 430 years after Abraham, and it was a temporary station. It was, it was temporary in pl- temporarily in place until salvation history could work itself out in Jesus. That means they had a start date and an end date. You know, if you go all the way back and you read the entire Old Testament, there's a story arc that was always pointing to Jesus. It was always about him. God was building a nation and then spreading the nation all over the entire earth so that he'd have people everywhere, so that when Jesus would come, the gospel would spread and the kingdom would grow. Now these verses, they they can be a bit confusing, but let me quickly tell you what Paul means. He says this, when the law came into the world, it took the sins that we were always committing, and it made us conscious that they were wrong. That's basically what the law was meant to do. It was meant to show you that what you were doing was wrong. See, in the Bible, there's two forms of revelation, okay? There's what we would call general revelation and specific revelation. General revelation simply means that every single person on the planet, no matter if you're a Christian or not, knows that God exists. The heavens declare the glory of God. There's something innately built into you. This is why I've argued that every single civilization that has ever existed has always believed in God. Everybody has this thing built into the human heart. Blaise Pascal said it, the the God-sized hole in your heart. Everybody longs for God. It's not enough, though. You need to know who that God is, okay? That's where specific revelation comes in. When the law came, it it specified what we already knew in our hearts, and then it made everybody have no excuse. Now you know that you fall short. You no longer can assume that you're right and wrong. There is no debate. We know what right and wrong is. So the law didn't cause sin, Paul is saying. It was already there. It just simply made you aware of it. That's why this Greek word for transgressions is actually not sin. Sin has always existed, but the law made it clear that what you were doing is not good. That's, that's the whole point of the law. The point is, the law doesn't make you a sinner. The Bible saying, no, you're already a sinner. You just needed to know that you were a sinner. So God put some things in place to let you know. All right, don't get caught up on this idea of angel and mediator language. It's simply saying that God... God used angels to deliver the message of the law, um, literally by the hands of Moses. Paul, what Paul is doing is, is he's talking about how holy the law is and, and that the purpose that it served. The, the law is there to make it really clear that God has standards. Okay, that's all it is. And that all those standards are fulfilled in Jesus. And the gospel is Jesus in my place. That's, that's what he says. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Do you know how intermediaries work? Mediation? Mediation takes two parties. See, you have someone who writes a contract and agrees to it, and then the other person has to agree to the contract too. The thing is about God's covenants is God's covenants took one party. It was God himself doing it. This is what he's saying. Intermediaries, that employs more than one, but God is one. He wrote the contract, and he did everything necessary to save you. It didn't take two parties. He doesn't need you to do it. God did all of it. That's how salvation works. He justified you by what he did, not by what you do. God is one. By the way, this is a direct reference. Anybody know? Anybody know? Shema. Deuteronomy 6. 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's, he's actually showing you that Jesus is the same God promised all the way back to Deuteronomy 6. It also means that God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. He's the same God. God is one. He's not a different God. And, and he's the one who fulfills both sides of the contract. All you did was receive it. All of this simply is driving home the point that the gospel is all about what Jesus did, not what you do. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus in my place. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had not been given that could if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Again, there's, this is another way of saying the same thing. The law, given through the scriptures, make the standard of God really clear that you cannot fulfill the law and it won't make you righteous. The entire point of the Old Testament is to make you understand that you need a savior. You can't save yourself. You need to sit with that for just a second. You can't earn your own righteousness. It needs to be righteousness given, justification by faith. And, and, and it's under sin because you know that your sins are missing the mark of God's perfect standard. So if you want to receive the promise of God, you can't earn it. You have to receive it by faith in Jesus. Now, notice that it's not faith that saves you. Uh, and this is so important. Faith doesn't save you. The object of your faith saves you. You can tell me all day long that you have faith that you can fly, but if you jump off the top of a building and you don't have wings, you're going to die. Faith doesn't save you. That parachute might. The object of your faith saves you. In the same way, it's not faith that saves you. It's faith in Jesus that saves you. He saves you. Your faith doesn't save you. Matter of fact, if your faith saves you, that's just another works righteousness. It's just you doing it on your own again. The question that you have to ask yourself is, do you believe in Jesus? Like, like this kind of believe in Jesus, where I transfer the weight of my life onto him. I've heard it said this way, every heart has a throne in the cross. You're either sitting on the throne and Jesus is on the cross, or you have to be on the cross so that Jesus can be on the throne. Have you crucified yourself to live to him? That's the question. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you transferred your weight? Is he your righteousness? Are you letting him live through you? Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. That makes sense, right? Before Jesus, you had to be your own righteousness. You couldn't be your own righteousness. You were imprisoned to it. Let me just tell you, the Bible does not talk about freedom. It talks about slavery. Doulos is the word. You're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin. But if you're a slave to Christ, you inherit his freedom. He owns you. And when you're owned by a good king, what ends up happening is you have freedom. Or you're a slave to your sins. And if you're a slave to your sins, you're going to be in prison to those things. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. If you didn't know this explicitly, I want you to say it. You are a sinner. Uh, I, I, you are a sinner. And you wouldn't know that you needed a savior unless you knew the law. The law makes it really clear that you're a sinner and that's not a bad thing to know if you know a savior. If you know a savior, then your sin doesn't own you. He does. Which means that you inherit everything that he has. But now, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's the gospel. Now that you have faith in Jesus, because he has fulfilled the law in your place, you're no longer imprisoned underneath this standard that you can't fulfill anymore. You are now a part of the family of God, and the spirit of God lives in you, which means that he is giving you the ability to be a son of God or a daughter of God. Verse 27. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have put on have put on Christ. You put him on. There's a union with him. As you've died with him, Romans 6 says, you're baptized with him, so now you live with him. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, let me just tell you this. He's not talking like um, 
we got to address this in 2023. He's not talking about like sexual binary terms, okay? He's talking about identities. Your primary identity is in Christ. He's not saying that if you're a Christian, it doesn't really matter if you're a boy or girl anymore. That's not what he's saying. Hey, you, you maintain your identity. It's just no longer your primary identity. Your primary identity is that you are in Christ. You're one in Christ. You're united to Christ. You're sons of Christ. You're, you're sons and daughters of Abraham now. You've received faith in Jesus, and this righteous union with him gives you all the rights and the privileges of the son, or of, of the king. And as sons and daughters of the king, you have his inheritance, which means that you get everything in him. Here, here it is. Don't go back to the law. All it will be is your taskmaster. All it will do is imprison you. All right, with that, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you are who you said that you are, that you delivered to us that which is of first importance, that Christ raised from the dead. Thank you that we know you and we're known by you, that we have received from Paul through you revelation. Thank you for the example of Paul's life that none of us are too far gone to be known by you. There's nothing we've ever done to make you love you, make you love us any more, and there's nothing we could ever do to make you love us any less. Because it's not dependent on what we do, but on what you've done. So Jesus, help us to never teach another gospel. We confess that not only do we sometimes teach it, but oftentimes we believe it. We believe the lie that we're not good enough. We believe the lie that you're ashamed of us. We believe the lie that we have to earn your affections. And, and Father, I pray that you would help us and remind us that you are pleased with us. Help us to receive it, to never achieve it, and to live in your grace. Grace and peace. That's what we need. It's who we want to be. And I pray that you would form that in us. In Jesus' name.